You're listening to the sermon series on the letter to the Philippians at Sojourn East. In this letter, the Apostle Paul calls believers to live on the earth now as citizens of heaven. This means that Christians should find their identity not in this world, but in the world to come, centered on Jesus Christ. Peace be with you, Sojourn Man, I have waited so long. It's good to see you and to be back with you. To not be looking at a camera, seeing faces. Let me pray for us before we dive into God's word. Father, we thank you for the gift of gathering. Thank you for the gift of our church, brothers and sisters. And even though there's so much turmoil in our world, in our own souls. I thank you that we can be together again to encourage and lift one another up in song and in prayer and with your word. So I pray for us this morning that you would speak powerfully through me, that we know your spirit is at work in our midst. I pray as we open your, your word this morning that we would feast on it. We would find sustenance and we would find satisfaction and we would find strength to continue on and to press on in faithfulness. I thank you for the gift that we can be back together again. I also remember all of those who aren't here who are watching online. Lord, I pray that this service will be an encouragement to them as well. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tomorrow will mark three months since we've gathered together as a church. And it's been quite a three months been three months unlike anything I've experienced in my lifetime, and I know that's the same for most of you. We have pandemic threatening our health. We have shutdowns threatening our collective wealth and our economy. We have racialized violence. We have protests. We have riots. More than any time I can remember in my life, it just kind of feels like the world is shaking right now. And in talking with many of you, I know that many of you are shaking as well. I mean, it comes up even as we interact with one another. If someone asks you, how are you doing? We used to say good, no matter what. Now, the most common response I hear is I'm okay. Sometimes people are a little more honest and they'll say, I'm I'm tired. I'm weary. I'm not great. This is not how any of us expected 2020 to go. And I wonder if you had to name one emotion that has marked your life over the past three months, what emotion would that be? One emotion that kind of dominated the others. Would it be fear? Would it be sadness? Anger? Maybe it's more apathy or numbness or confusion. I want you to think about it. What would that one emotion be? And I wonder if there's anyone here who would say the emotion that has most defined me over the last three months is joy. Seems kind of absurd, even insensitive or obtuse. But one of the recurring promises we see throughout the New Testament is that joy is available to us in Christ, no matter our circumstances. That joy 
in Christ is not contingent on our circumstances. And at times we're told that suffering and crisis, they actually, they increase our opportunity, Joyce. I say this because we're looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians. It's often been referred to as the epistle of joy. More aptly, it, would be, it could be called the epistle of joy in the face of crisis. If you know much about Paul's life and ministry, you know that he spent years longing to go to Rome to preach the gospel. He prayed and prayed and he dreamed about it. Well, he's writing this letter to the Philippians from Rome, but he's not there as a preacher. He's there as a prisoner. He's been arrested. He's right now in chains as he's writing this. He's chained literally to a guard. And the authorities are trying to sort out whether or not they want to put him to death. And so he writes this letter to his friends in Philippi. And understandably, they're a bit worried about him. How's he holding up? Is he staying strong in the faith? How's Paul doing? And in chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, Paul basically says, this is my summary, the Kevin Jameson version, KJV. He says, it's not how I plan things to go, but it's all good. He's like, I thought I'd come as a preacher, but I'm here as a prisoner. But you know what? Christ is still being proclaimed. Even the guards, they're talking gospel. Other believers, they're watching my example. And they're, they're emboldened and strengthened. And Christ is being glorified by me being in prison. He's being glorified in Rome, the center of the world. Are you kidding me? How am I doing? I'm overflowing with joy. This is wonderful. Enjoy. Paul, he sees God's hand and trust in his plan, even as he is waiting to hear if he's going to be put to death. And the question I want to put before us today is how? How can you have that kind of joy? How can you be overflowing with joy in the face of this crisis? And I'm not going to take a while to tell you. I'll tell you straight straight off the top. We're going to go quicker while we're outside. So I'm just going to get straight to the point. The answer, Paul tells us, is in Philippians 1, verse 21, where he says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Something we want to do while we're gathering outside each week, we want to put a verse before you to encourage you, whether you're eight years old or 80, we want to encourage you to memorize it. And so if you're up for that challenge, I want to encourage you to repeat after me. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1.21. There you go. You got it memorized. Now, this is a famous verse. <clears throat> I fear sometimes it can be sentimentalized. But this isn't a sentimental saying for Paul. It's not some pithy aphorism that you hang on a wall or you put on a coffee cup. This is Paul's guiding philosophy for life. If you want to know what it is that makes Paul tick, it is this verse. This is the, the anchor for him that steadies him in the midst of, storms, and in the waves of crisis. And we've heard it. If you've been around the church, you've heard it. But what does this statement actually mean? What does Paul mean when he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain? Well, Paul continues in chapter 1. He offers, 
he explains what this means by basically offering a thought experiment. And he says, if God gave me the choice right now that I could continue on in faithful service or I could die, which would I choose? And Paul says, I don't know. I think for us, we would say it's real clear. I want to live. Thanks for this game, but I'm done. Paul says, I don't know. He actually says in verse 23, if I had the choice, I don't know which I'd choose. I'm hard pressed between the two. And then he explains why. He says, on the one hand, if I live, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. So he's saying, if I get to live, then I get to make much of Christ through my preaching and through my life. If I live, more people are going to hear the gospel. More people are going to turn from their sin and turn to their creator, be reconciled to God. If I live, we're going to see the church grow and the mission expand. And that's amazing. He's like, that's a pretty good deal. Like to live is really, really good. Is there anything that could be better than that? And Paul, for Paul, he actually says, yes, there is something better than that. In verse 23, he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And I want you to misunderstand what Paul's saying here. He's saying, my desire right now, he's writing this letter, my desire is to die, to depart, and to be with Christ. That's not just a little bit better, and that's not a consolation price. That is far better. And Paul, he doesn't say this because he's, he's so discouraged and feeling so hopeless that he wants to give up. He doesn't say this because he has some kind of a death wish. Paul says this because he understands reality. He understands that the world that God created as good is desperately broken and disordered. And he knows that in this world, in its present state, those who mock God, who mock his word, and who mock his people, they're honored, they're celebrated, they're praised, and they're platformed. Meanwhile, those who, like Paul, honor God, those people are mocked and marginalized and mistreated and even imprisoned. So Paul's looking at it. Do I want to continue on in this broken, disordered world? Or would I rather be with Christ? In this world, I'm in chains. If I'm with him, I'm crowned. In this world, I'm dishonored with him. I will be honored. In this world, I'm being rejected. But with him, I'll finally be rewarded. But it's not just that. Paul also, we know what's going through his mind because these are his words. He says, right now, in this world, we see through a mirror dimly. But when we die, we get to see him face to face. And be fully known by him and fully know him. And so, yes, if the choice were mine to make, I choose being with him, departing and being with him right now, for that is far better. But then Paul pulls out of the thought experiment. He knows it's not his choice to make, it's not our choice to make when we live or when we die. And he writes in verse 25 and 26, he says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. He's talking to his people. To remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. 
and know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Yes, I want to go, but I also want to stay, and I want to stay because I love you, and I want to see you grow, and I want to see you mature. I want to see you progress in the faith, and I want to see Christ get the glory. So stepping back from all of that, Paul's guiding philosophy to live as Christ, to die as gain, basically what Paul is saying is no matter what happens, I win. This is true for all Christians. No matter what happens, we win. If we live, the world gets more of Christ. If we die, we get more of Christ. Either way, it's a win. And this is the reason Paul can remain cool and collected while he is rotting away in a prison cell. This is what gives him this steadiness, this confidence, what what I would call a buoyant joy. Any of you ever tried to sink a basketball in a swimming pool? Anyone? That's Paul. Like, you might get him under for a second, but then he just pops back up. He's got a resilience, a faithfulness, because he knows that no matter what happens, it's good. We win. And I wonder about you. I know for me, this is who I want to be. I want to be a person marked by a resilient, faithful, buoyant joy. I want to be able to face the hardships, the challenges, and not be crushed by them. And so here's my question. My question is, we have the same promises and the same hope that Paul had, but we don't often, don't usually have the same buoyant joy that Paul had. Why is that? What causes that? Well, often when we quote Philippians 1, 21, people will quote it as, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And while that's part of it, that's not the whole verse. Paul begins the verse, he says, for to me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's saying, for to me, this is something that I've worked out in my mind in my heart, for to me to live as Christ is to honor him and to serve him, and to die is to be with him and enjoy his presence and rest in his goodness. Paul is saying, I have thought this through. And while this can be ours, it doesn't just come automatically. It's something we have to work through as well. It requires the single-minded devotion to Christ, and this takes work thinking and considering and processing. And so the invitation and challenge I want to put before you today is quite simply this. Remove the word Christ and the word gain from Philippians 1.21. Put some blanks in there and then fill in the blanks. For to me, to live is and to die is. To live is, what would you put there? 
you know, an inscription was found around that's dated to around the time of Paul. It was in the uh, ancient ruins, been written by a Roman soldier. And the soldier wrote, to laugh, to hunt, to bathe, to gamble, that is life. And that kind of sounds like a New York Times bestseller these days. Bathe, laugh, hunt, gamble. I wonder what, what ours would be. I wonder what the motto of our day would be. To laugh, to feast, to travel, to play, the, to love, that is life. Or maybe when you think of to live is, when you think of filling in that blank, maybe your answer isn't quite as picturesque. For you, you think to live is to work, to provide for my, my family, to parent my children. Or to me, to live is to eat pizza and watch Netflix. That's what I live for. Now, I want to be really clear. I don't want to dismiss or demean. And many of those things are essential. Those things are important. And there's a version of Christianity that says demean all of the things that God has given us, demean all created things. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we should value those things but we shouldn't overvalue them. They're important, but they're not of ultimate importance. And where this gets really, this exercise of filling in the blank, where it gets really challenging is whatever we place in the first blank will determine what ends up in the second blank. If you put anything other than Christ in that first blank, the second blank auto-completes with loss. To live is my family. Well, to die, you are departing from your family. To die is loss. To live is success. To die is loss. To live is pleasure. To die is loss. If you put anything other than Christ in that blank, it's loss. On the flip side, if you put Christ in that first blank, if you say, for me to live is Christ, the second blank auto-fills with gain, with profit. You end up with more, not less. Because at the end of the age, not only will he restore all of the material things we've lost, not only will he be given new bodies as Pastor Jonathan and myself preached about the future hope we have, but we get him. And all of the labor that we've done in him has not been in vain. That's the gain as you get Jesus. As I was preparing this week's sermon, I was thinking through this verse. Verse 23. For Paul says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And I was convicted by that. And I thought about our church. I thought about us and where we're at. I mean, we are, we are affluent people. We have, we have a lot of blessings. Our lives are pretty good. I was watching a movie a while ago. I don't even remember the name of it. And it wasn't that great of a movie, but it was... There were some American soldiers talking with some allied Afghanistan soldiers from Afghanistan. And the Americans were saying, if you do that, you're risking your life. You might die. 
and the Afghani soldier said, we're okay with dying. Said, you Americans, you have such wonderful lives that for you, you fear death. Our lives aren't that great. Death offers the hope of something better. That really struck me and it stuck with me. Because as believers, no matter how great our lives might be here, to die is to gain. It means we get Christ. We get to be with him. And if that's not the overarching passion, if that's not the overarching and and greatest joy you can imagine, I think it's because we don't see him as he truly is. When we examine the Gospels, we see all kinds of people flocking to Jesus. We got prostitutes and tax collectors and drunkards. We got even some religious leaders. And when they come to Jesus, they don't come to him. Some do. But those who become his disciples don't. They don't come to him to say, hey, we could could use a quick spiritual tune-up. I want to live a more well-rounded life. They come to him with empty hands. They leave their nets behind, their father behind, their boats behind. They break open their alabaster jar. They come with no conditions. And the reason why is because they see him as he truly is and realize that he is more valuable than anything on this earth. And that's my prayer for us. After this pen slash mentor of mine, he told me, Kevin, crisis always clarifies. Crisis always clarifies. I don't know about you. When the crisis hit, I went to our budget and was like, ah, we don't really need this. We don't need this. Other parts of my life. What do I really value? What do I really treasure? Crisis, suffering, it has the power to strip away all the scaffolding around our lives and reveal what it is we truly value, what really matters to us, what it is that we're living for. But that's hard work when that happens. It's painful work. And I know for most of us, I know for some of you, the last few months have been amazing and you've gone deeper in your walk with Christ than ever. And I want to say, praise God for you. That's amazing. But I know for most of us, the last few months haven't gone great. We're not going to chalk them up as some of our favorite months ever. I think for a lot of us, kind of feels like we've been punched in the mouth a few times. You're like hit, hit. You're reeling and trying to gain your, your perspective. And then you get hit again and you get hit again. And I think a lot of the negative emotions that have come, some are healthy, but some might reveal disorder in our hearts. When we lose our sleep over things, when Jesus said, hey, don't worry, I'm going to provide for you. Look at, <laughs> look, there's birds. There's some flowers. But we can't sleep at night because we're afraid. It exposes us. And if you feel exposed by this pandemic, by the last three months, I just want you to know that in Christ, Jesus, he covers all of our sins, past, present, and future. And Jesus' patience is greater than his children's sinfulness. Like we can't out-sin his. That's why he came and that's why he died. And he's come to set us free. And so if you're in a place where you're like, I'm not doing well, 
wants you to know that it's okay. We're really glad you're here. But also, I don't want you to miss the opportunity. If we've learned anything in the last few months, we've learned that this world is not the way it ought to be. We're seeing it at every level. It's desperately broken, and it will remain desperately broken until Christ returns and makes all things new. And that might happen in our lifetime. Probably won't. And so our call as we inhabit this, this broken earth, yes, it's to, to act justly, to, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. But the foundation beneath that, it's lives upon Christ. So my invitation I want to put before you this week is take some time to be with Jesus. Write on a piece of paper, for to me to live is, and then with Christ, talk about it. What goes in the blank? And then write, for me to die is. And I just want to say, whatever you find, good, bad, or ugly, Jesus already knows, and he loves you still. And so you can bring it to him and lay it before him, knowing that that's how we make progress, and that's how we grow in the Christian faith. And you can do that with confidence, knowing that his love for us unshakable and it's unswerving. If you were reminded of this in particular as we come to the Lord's table or our version of it, if you guys brought bread and wine or juice, now's the time to pull it out in the bread. Be reminded of Christ's body that's been broken for you. And as you take part in the wine, be reminded of Christ's blood that was shed for you. Be reminded that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And be reminded that he cares for you, he sustains you, and he wants the best for you. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.